Chapter 15, Part 10 of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Sutton. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2 by John Bagnell Burry. Chapter 15, Part 10. Dion. Strange as it may appear, after such experiences, Plato seems to have returned once more to Sicily, at the urgent invitation of Dionysus. He can have had no more expectations of making a philosopher out of the tyrant, and his chief motive must have been to bring about the recall of Dion and reconcile him to Dionysus, who appears to have lured the philosopher by the hope that this might be accomplished. Plato was received and entertained with as great honor as before, but his visit was fruitless. Probably the tyrant ascertained that Dion was in the meantime using his wealth to make silent preparations for winning his way back to Syracuse and overthrowing the tyranny. Dionysus, therefore, took the precaution of confiscating Dion's property, and then Plato returned to Athens as soon as he could. Dion also betook himself to Old Greece and made Athens his headquarters. Presently, the tyrant committed a needless act of tyranny, he compelled Dion's wife, Arete, to marry another man. At length, Dion deemed that the time for action had come. With a very small force, packed into not more than five merchant ships, he set sail from Zacynthus to encounter the mighty armaments of Dionysus. His coming was expected, and the Admiral Philistus had a fleet in Italian waters to waylay him. But Dion sailed straight across the open sea to Pekinus. His plan was to land in western Sicily, collect what reinforcements he could, and march on Syracuse. It was a bold enterprise, but Dion knew that the character of the tyrant was feeble, and that the Syracusans pined to be delivered from his tyranny. Driven by a storm to the Libyan coast, the ships of the Deliverer finally reached Heraclea Manoa, now a Carthaginian port, in southwestern Sicily. Here, they learned that Dionysus had departed for Italy with 80 ships, and they lost no time in marching to Syracuse, picking up reinforcements, both Greek and Sicil, on their way. The Campanian mercenaries, who were guarding Epipolae, were lured away by a trick, and making a night march from Acraea, Dion and his party entered Syracuse amid general rejoicings. The assembly placed the government in the hands of twenty generals. Dion was among them. The fortress of Epipolae was secured. No part of Syracuse remained in possession of Dionysus except the island and against this Dion built a wall of defense, from the greater to the lesser harbor. Seven days later, Dionysus returned. While Syracuse was rocking with the first enthusiasm at her deliverance, the deliverer was the popular hero. But Dion was not a man who could hold the affections of the people, for he repelled men by his exceeding haughtiness, and it was seen to that he was determined masterfully to direct the Syracusans how they were to use their freedom. Dionysus, shut up in the island, resorted to artifices to raise suspicion against him in the minds of the citizens. An arrival appeared on the scene, who possessed more popular manners than Dion. This was a certain Heraclides, whom the tyrant had banished, and who now returned with an armament of ships and soldiers. The assembly elected him admiral. Dion undid this act on the ground that his own consent was necessary, and then came forward himself to propose Heraclides. This behavior alienated the sympathies of the citizens. They did not want another autocrat. Soon afterwards, Heraclides won an important sea fight, 
defeating Philistus, who had returned from Italy with his squadron. The old historian himself was taken and put to death with cruelty. Dionysus thus lost his best support, and presently he escaped from the island, taking his triremes with him, but leaving a garrison of mercenaries and his young son, Apollocrates, in command. Soon after this, the influence of Dion waned so much that the Syracusans deposed him from the post of general and appointed 25 new generals, among them Heraclides. They also refused to grant any pay to the Peloponnesian deliverers who had come with Dion. The Peloponnesians would have gladly turned against the Syracusans if Dion had given the signal. But Dion, though self-willed, was too genuine a patriot to attack his own city and he retired to Leontini with 3,000 devoted men. The Syracusans then went on the siege of the island fortress, and so hard-pressed was the garrison that it determined to surrender. Heralds had been already sent to announce the decision to the Syracusans when in the early morning reinforcements arrived. Soldiers and provisions brought by a campanian of Naples, by name Nipsius, who, eluding the notice of the enemy's ships, sailed into the great harbor. The situation was changed, and negotiations were immediately broken off. At first, fortune favored the Syracusans. Heraclides put out to sea and won a second sea fight, sinking or capturing whatever warships had been left behind by Dionysus or were brought by Nipsius. At this success, the city went wild with joy and spent the night in carousing. Before the dawn of day, when soldiers and generals were alike sunk in a drunken sleep, Nipsius and his troops issued from the gates of the island and surmounting the cross wall of Dion by scaling ladders, slew the guards and took possession of Lower Acredina and the Agora. All this part of the city was sacked. Full leave was given to the mercenaries to do as they listed. They carried off women and children, and all the property they could lay hands on. Next day, all the citizens who had taken refuge in Apopoli and the upper Acredina, looking hopelessly at what had been done, and seeing what the barbarians were beginning their horrible work again, Messengers, riding as swiftly as they could, reached Leontini towards evening. Dion led them to the theater, and there, before the gathered folk, the envoys told their tale and implored Dion and the Peloponnesians to forget the ingratitude of Syracuse and come to her help. Dion made a moving speech. He would in any case go, and if he could not save his city, he would bury himself in her ruin. But the Peloponnesians might well refuse to stir for a people which had entreated them so ill. A shout went up, the Syracuse must be rescued, and for the second time, Dion led the Peloponnesians to her deliverance. They set out at once, and a night march brought them to Megara, five or six miles from Syracuse at the dawn of day. There, dreadful tidings reached them. Nipsius, knowing that the rescue was on its way, and deeming that no time was to be lost, had let loose his barbarians again into the city at midnight. They no longer thought of plunder, but only of slaying and burning. At this news, the army of rescue hurried on to save what might still be saved. Entering by the Hexapylon on the north, Dion cleared his way before him through Arachidina, and reached the cross wall, which he had himself built as a defense against the island. It was now broken down, but behind its ruins, Nipsius had posted a body of his mercenaries, and this was the scene of the decisive struggle. Dion's men carried the wall, and the foe was driven back into the fortress of Ortigia. The opponents of Dion, who had not fled, were humbled. Heraclides besought his pardon, and Dion was blamed for not putting him to death. It was at all events foolish magnanimity, which consented to the arrangement that Dion should be general with full power on land, 
and Heraclides by sea. The old dissension soon broke out, and presently we find a Spartan named Gesilus reconciling the rivals and constraining Heraclides to swear solemnly to do nothing against Dion. Nipsius seems to have disappeared from the scene, and it was not long before the son of Dionysus, wary of the long siege, made up his mind to surrender the island to Dion. During all these dreadful events, Dion's sister, Aristomache, and his wife, Arete, had been kept in the island. Dion now took back his wife. The time at last came for Dion to show what his political aims really were. He professed to have come to give Syracuse freedom, but the freedom which he would have given her was not such as she herself desired. The Syracusan citizens wanted the restoration of their democracy. But to Dion, democracy seemed as bad a form of government as tyranny. If taught by experience, he no longer dreamed of a platonic state. He desired to establish an aristocracy with some democratic limitations, and with a king, or kings, as in Sparta. With this purpose in view, he sent to Corinth for helpers and advisors, and he expressed his leanings to the Corinthian oligarchy by an issue of coins with a flying horse, modeled on the Pegasi of Corinth. But though Dion hoped to establish a state in which the few should govern the many, he made a grave mistake in not immediately placing himself above the suspicion of being a selfish power seeker, a possible tyrant. The Syracusans longed to see the fortress of the tyrant demolished, and if Dion had complied with their wish, he might have secured for himself abiding influence. But though he did not live in the fortress, he allowed it to remain, and its existence seemed a standing invitation to tyranny. Dion had no intention of allowing the Syracusans to manage their own affairs, and the enjoyment of power corrupted him. His authority was only limited by the joint command of Heraclides, and at last he was brought to consent that his rival should be secretly assassinated. After this, he was to all purposes tyrant, though he might repudiate tyranny with his lips. Among those who had come with him from Elder Greece to liberate Syracuse was a pupil of Plato, named Caliphus, and this man plotted to overthrow Dion, who trusted him implicitly. Aristomachy and Arete suspected him and taxed him with treachery, nor were they assured until he had taken the most solemn oath that a mortal could take. He went to the precinct of the great goddesses Demeter and Persephone. The priest wrapped him in the purple robe of the queen of the underworld and gave him a lighted torch. In this guise, he swore that he plotted no evil design against Dion, but so little regard had Callipus for religion that he chose the festival of the maiden by whom he had sworn for the execution of his plot. He employed some men of Zacynthus to murder Dion and then seize the power himself. The tyranny of Callipus lasted for about a year. Then, while he was engaged in an attack on Catane, the two sons of the elder Dionysus by his second wife, Hipparinus and Nicias, came to Syracuse and won possession of Ortigia. These brothers were a worthless pair, drunken and dissolute. Hipparinus held the island for about two years. Then he was murdered in a fit of drunkenness and was succeeded by Nicaeus, who ruled Ortigia five years longer. It is not certain how far these tyrants were able to assert their authority over Syracuse outside the precincts of the island. During all these changes, Dionysus was living at Locri, the native city of his mother, and ruling it with a tyrant's rod. His cruelty and the outrages which he committed on the freeborn maidens of the city provoked universal hatred. At length he saw the chance of recovering Syracuse, 
leaving his wife and daughters at Locri with a small garrison, he sailed to Ortigia and drove out Nicias. As soon as he had gone, the Locrians arose and easily overcame his mercenaries. The enormities of which the tyrant had been guilty may best be measured by the brutal thirst of vengeance which now consumed the citizens of Locri. No supplications, no intervention, no offers of ransom could turn them away from wreaking their pent-up hatred on the wife and daughters of Dionysus. The women were submitted to the most horrible tortures and insults before they were strangled. The sea was sown with their ashes. End of chapter 15, part 10. Recording by Paul Sutton. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2, by John Bagnell Burry, Chapter 15, Part 11. Timolean. At this moment, tyrannies flourished in Sicily. Besides Syracuse, the cities of Messana, Leontini, and Catane, and many Sicil towns were under the yoke of tyrants. Syracuse was at least half free. Dionysus held only the island. But the Syracusans, for lack of another leader, looked for help and guidance in their struggle against their own tyrant to the man who had made himself lord of Leontini. This was a certain Hecatus, a man ill to deal with, who was a follower of Dion. But after Dion's death caused his wife and sister to be drowned while they were sailing to the Peloponnesus, this Hecatus was aiming at becoming himself lord of Syracuse and he hoped to accomplish this purpose with the help of Carthage. But he veiled his designs, and he supported an appeal which the Sicilian Greeks now addressed to Corinth. It was an appeal for help, both against the plague of tyranny which was rampant in Sicily, and against the Carthaginians who were preparing a great armament to descend upon the troubled island. The Syracusans selected Hecatus as their general. Corinth, ever a solicitous mother to her colonies, was ready to respond to the appeal, and the only difficulty was to find a suitable commander. Someone in the assembly, by a sudden inspiration, arose and named Timoleon, the son of Timodemus. Belonging to a noble family and notable by his personal qualities, Timoleon was living under a strange cloud, though a deed which some highly praised and others severely blamed. He had saved his brother's life in battle at the risk of his own, but when that brother afterwards plotted to make himself tyrant, Timoleon and some friends put him to death. His mother and many others abhorred him as guilty of a brother's blood, while others admired him as the slayer of a tyrant. In the light of his later deeds, we know that Timoleon was actuated by the highest motives of duty when he consented to his brother's death. Ever since that terrible day, he had lived in a retirement, but when his name was mentioned in the assembly, all approved, and Telecletes, a man of influence, expressed the general thought by saying, we shall decide that he slew a tyrant if he is successful, that he slew his brother if he fails. The enterprise was to be Timoleon's ordeal. With ten ships of war, a few fellow citizens, and about one thousand mercenaries, Timoleon crossed the Ionian Sea, guided, it was said, by the track of a flaming torch, the emblem of the Sicilian goddesses Demeter and Persephone. At Regium, now free from the rule of tyrants, he met with a warm welcome but he found a Carthaginian fleet awaiting him there, and likewise ambassadors from Hecatus, who demanded that the ships and soldiers should be sent back to Corinth, since the Carthaginians would not permit them to cruise the Sicilian waters. As for Timoleon himself, Hecatus would be pleased to have his help and counsel. Timoleon had no thought of heeding such a message. It was not to set up the rule of Hecatus at Syracuse that he had come, 
or to submit to the dictation of the foes of Hellas. But the difficulty was to leave the roadstead of Regium in face of the Punic fleet. Here, Timolaean showed caution and craft. He pretended to agree to the proposals, but he asked that the whole matter and the intentions of Akitas should be clearly stated in the presence of the Regine people. With the connivance of the Regines, time was wasted and the Carthaginians and the ambassadors of Akitas were detained in the assembly until the Corinthian ships had put out to sea, Timolean himself slipping away just in time to embark in the last of them. He made straight for Torimenium. It will be remembered that Torimenium, planted by Hamilco to be a Sicil city, had been taken by Dionysus to be an abode for his mercenaries. Amid the troubles after the tyrant's death, it had gained its independence, and a citizen named Andromachus had become the foremost man in its public affairs. Andromachus induced his fellow citizens to offer a home to the homeless Naxians, whose parents Dionysus had so cruelly disposed. The Naxians came back to the hill which looked down on the place of their old city. Naxos revived in Torimenium and the Naxians were the first Sicilians to welcome the deliverer of Sicily to her shores. Timoleon's first success was at Hadranum, the Sicil town where the great Sicilian fire god Hadranus had his chief abode. The men of Hadranum were at discord among themselves. Some would summon Hecatus, others invited Timoleon, but both Hecatus and Timoleon came. It was a race between them to get to Hadranum first. Timolaean, the later to arrive, surprised the enemy as they were resting outside the town, and defeated them, although in numbers they were five to one. The gates of the city were then thrown open, and Hadranum became the headquarters of Timolaean's army. Soon afterwards, Hecatus suborned two men to assassinate the Corinthian leader, but the plot was frustrated at the last moment, and henceforth the belief gained ground that Timolaean was hedged about by some divine protection. The fire god of Hadranum, too, had shown by miraculous signs that he approved of the stranger's enterprise. Others now allied themselves with Timolaean, and presently Dionysus sent a message to him, proposing to surrender the island and asking only to be allowed to retire in safety to Corinth with his private property. The offer was at once accepted. The fortress and the mercenaries who guarded it and all the war gear were transferred to Timolaean. Dionysus lived the rest of his life at Corinth in harmless obscurity. Many anecdotes were told of the trivial doings of the fallen lord of Sicily and his smart sayings. When someone contrasted his fortune with that of his father, he remarked, My father came into power when democracy was hated, but I, when tyranny was envied. Having won Ortigia sooner and more easily than could have been hoped, it remained for Timoleon to liberate the rest of Syracuse, which was in the hands of Hecatus. But Hecatus had powerful allies. 150 Carthaginian ships, under the command of Mago, sailed into the Great Harbor, and a Carthaginian force was admitted into Syracuse. The Corinthian commander in the island, Timolaean himself still abode at Hadranum, was hard-pressed, but presently Mago and Hecatus went off to besiege Catane, and Neon, making a successful sally, occupied Acredina. At the same time, reinforcements from Corinth, which had been for some time delayed in Italy by the Carthaginian fleet, arrived in Sicily. It was now time for Timolaean himself to appear at Syracuse. He pitched his camp on the south side of the banks of Anapus. Then another piece of luck befell him. The Greek mercenaries, both his own and those of Acadus, used to amuse their idle hours by fishing for eels at the mouth of the river. And as they had no cause of quarrel, though they were ready to kill each other for pay, they used to converse amicably on such occasions. 
one of Timolan's soldiers, observed that the Greeks ought to combine against the barbarians. And the words coming to the ears of Mago caused him to conceive suspicions of Hecatus. He suddenly sailed off with all of his fleet. But when he reached Carthage, he slew himself and his countrymen crucified his corpse. This story, however, can hardly be whole explanation of Mago's strange behavior. Thus freed from his most formidable foe, Timolean soon drew Hecatus from Apopoli, and Syracuse was at length completely free. The Syracusans had found a deliverer who did not, like Dion, seek to be their master, and the fortress of Dionysus was pulled down. This act of demolition seemed the seal and assurance of their deliverance. But the city was dispeopled and desolate. Grass grew in the marketplace, and the first task of the deliverer was to repopulate it with new citizens. The Corinthians made proclamations at the festivals of elder Greeks, inviting emigrants to resettle Syracuse. Men whom the tyrants had banished flocked back, and 60,000 men in all gathered both from west and east, with women and children, and restored the strength of the city. The laws of Diocles were issued anew and the democratic constitution was revived, and in some respects remodeled. The most important innovation was the investing of Amphipolis, or priest of Olympian Zeus, with the chief magistracy. The priest was annually elected and gave his name to the year. But, as he was chosen by lot out of three clans, his promotion to be the first magistrate of the republic was a limitation of the democracy. Such was the renovation of Syracuse. And her new freedom was expressed on some coins which were now issued by the symbol of an unbridled steed. Timolean then went on to do for other towns in Sicily what he had done for Syracuse. Many tyrants submitted, even Hecatus, who had withdrawn to Leontini. There was also work to be done against the Carthaginians, who were intent upon recovering lost ground and were preparing for another great effort to drive the Greeks out of Sicily. Five years after Timolean had landed in the island, a large armament sailed from Carthage and put in at Lilybium. It consisted of 200 galleys and 1,000 transports. There were 10,000 horses, some for war chariots, and the total number of the infantry was said to be 70,000. The flower of the host was the sacred band of 2,500 Carthaginian citizens, men of birth and wealth. Hamilcar and Hasdrubal, the commanders, decided to march right across Sicily against Syracuse. But Timolan did not await them there. He would try to encounter them west of the Helissus in Punic, not in Grecian territory. Collecting such an army as he could, it amounted to no more than 10,000, he set out. On the march, he was deserted by 1,000 mercenaries, who clamored for arrears of pay and murmured at being led against such overwhelming odds. And with difficulty could he persuade the rest to go on. The Carthaginians were encamped on the west bank of the Cremissus, a branch of the river Hypsus, not that which washes Acragus, but that which flows through the territory of Salinas. The city of Antella, now held by Campanians, was situated on the Cremissus, and it may be that the Punic army had halted with the hope of taking it. The field of battle, which was now fought between the Greeks and Phoenicians on the banks of the Cremissus, is unknown. In the morning, the Greeks ascended a hill which divided them from the river, and on their way they met mules laden with wild celery a herb which was used to wreathe sepulchral slabs. The soldiers were depressed by an incident which seemed ominous of evil, but of the same herb was wrought the crowns of victors in the Isthmian games, and Timolean hastened to interpret the chance as an augury of victory. He wreathed his head with a celery, and the whole host followed his example. Then two eagles appeared in the sky, one bearing a serpent, another fortunate omen. The Greeks halted on the hilltop, 
striving to pierce the mist which enveloped the ground below them, and when it melted away they saw the enemy crossing the stream. The war chariots crossed first, and behind came the sacred band. Timolayan saw that his chance laying attacking before the whole army had crossed. He set down his cavalry to lead the attack, and himself followed with the foot. The war chariots prevented the horses from approaching the sacred band, so Timolayan ordered the cavalry to move aside and assail the flank of the foe, leaving the way clear for the infantry. It is not recorded how the infantry swept away the war chariots, but they succeeded in reaching the sacred band. The Carthaginians, firm and immovable, withstood the onset of the spears, and the Greeks, finding that all their thrusting could not drive back or pierce the shield wall, flung down their spears and drew their swords. In the sword fight, it was no longer a matter of weight and courage. Skill and lithesome movements told. And the Greeks, superior in these qualities, utterly smote the sacred band. Meanwhile, the rest of the Punic army had crossed the river, and although the flower of it was destroyed, there were still enormous numbers to deal with. But fortune followed Temelane. Clouds had gathered and were hanging over the hills. And suddenly, there burst forth a tempest of lightning and wind-driven rain and hail. The Greeks had their backs to the wind. The rain and hail drove into the faces of the enemy, who in the noise could not hear the commands of their officers. When the ground became muddy, the lighter armor of the Greeks gave them a great advantage over their foes, who floundered about, weighted down by their heavy mail. At length, the Carthaginians could no longer stand their ground. And when they turned to fly, they found death in the Cremissus. Rapidly swollen by the rain, the river was now rushing along in a furious torrent, which swept men and horse to destruction. It is said that 15,000 prisoners were secured, that 10,000 men had been killed in the fight, not counting those who perished in the river. Rich spoils of gold and silver were taken in the camp. The choicest of the arms were sent to the Isthmus to be dedicated in the Temple of Poseidon. The battle was fallen out clean, contrary to what was like to have been. Timolayan had gained a victory, which may be set beside Gelen's victory at Himera, but he did not follow it up. He made no attempt to cut short the Phoenician dominion in Sicily. Perhaps his inaction was due to less unwillingness than to embarrassments which threatened Syracuse. The tyrant of Catane, who had gone over to Timolayan, declared against him. Hecatus seems to have seized again the tyranny of Leontini. And Timolayan found himself engaged in a war with these two tyrants, Mamercus and Hecatus, who were aided by Carthaginian mercenaries. At last, both the tyrants were captured. The Syracusans put them both to death, and slew the wife and daughter of Hecatus in retaliation for the murder of the wife and sister of Dion. The Messenians also put to death their oppressor, Hippon, with torture, and the schoolboys were taken to the theater to witness a tyrant's death. Other cities under the yoke of tyranny were likewise liberated, and some dispeopled towns, like Acragus and Gela, were colonized. After twenty years of troubles, Sicily was to have a respite now. Carthage made peace, the Hellissus being again fixed as the frontier, and she undertook to do nothing to uphold tyrants in Greek cities. Timolayan had now delivered Sicily from both domestic despots and from foreign foes, and having achieved his task, he laid down the powers which had been granted to him for its performance. Among the great men in Greek history, he holds a unique place, for the work which he accomplished was inspired neither by selfish ambition nor patriotism. He sought no power for himself. He labored in a strange land, for cities which might adopt him, but were not his own. Patriotism, indeed, in the widest sense, might stimulate his adore when he fought for Hellas against the Phoenicians. But of Greek leaders who achieved as much as he, there is none whose conduct was, like Timolayans, wholly guided by simple devotion to duty.
The Syracusans gave him a property near Syracuse, and there he dwelt till his death, two years after his crowning victory. Occasionally he visited the city when the folk wished to ask for his counsel, but he had become blind, and these visits were rare. He was lamented by all Greek Sicily, and at Syracuse his memory was preserved by a group of public buildings called after him. The land had rest for twenty years after Timolaean's death. The direct results of his work did not amount to more than that. A tyrant arose then of a worse type than the elder Dionysus, and his hand was heavy upon Sicily. But the career of Agathocles lies outside the limits of this history. Thus ends Chapter 11. Recording by Paul Sutton. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2, by John Bagnell Burry, Chapter 15, Part 12. Events in Great Greece. On the mainland, as in the island, the Hellenic name seemed like to have been blotted out, there by the Phoenicians and the Italian mercenaries, here by the native races. The power of the elder Dionysus had kept at bay the Lucanians, the Mesopians, the Iapogeans, and other neighbors who pressed on Great Greece. But when his son was attacked by Dion, the Syracusan Empire dissolved of itself, and the barbarians of Italy, having no great power to fear, began anew to descend from the mountains on the Greek settlements of the coast. A number of tribes in the toe of the peninsula banded themselves together in a league with their federal capital at Consentia, and this Brescian League, as it was called, aimed at subduing all the Greek cities of the promontory, Tyrena, Hipponian, Nusibaris, and Traeus, and other places were captured. Men were not blind to the danger which menaced western Hellas, of being sunk under a tide of barbarism, one of the objects of Plato and Dion had been to drive all the barbarian mercenaries out of Greek Sicily. But in Italy the peril was greatest, and there was sore need of help from without. The appeal of Syracuse to her mother Corinth, and the coming of Timolaean, put it into the mind of Terrace, hard bestead by the neighboring peoples, to ask succor of her mother Sparta. The appeal came at a favorable moment. Sparta was not in a position to undertake any political scheme at home and King Archidamus eagerly embraced the chance of going forth to fight for Hellas against the barbarians of the west, even as his father, Agrisilus, sixty years ago, had fought against the barbarians of the east. He got together a band of mercenaries, chiefly from Phocian survivors of the sacred war, and sailed to Italy. For four or five years seemingly he strove against the barbarians, but without winning any decisive success, and was finally killed at Mandonia in a battle with the Lucanians, the ineffectual expedition of Archidamus was a striking contrast to the brilliant achievements of Timolaean. But Terrace was not ungrateful for his efforts. She had commemorated her appeal to Sparta by many beautiful gold pieces, on which the infant Taurus was shown supplicating Poseidon of Cape Teneris. The tragic issue of that appeal suggested a motive for another series of coins, and called forth one of those pathetic illusions which Greek art could achieve with matchless grace. Terrace is represented riding on his dolphin and sadly contemplating a helmet. It is the helmet of the Spartan king who had fallen in his service. Taurus was soon forced to seek a new champion. She invited Alexander of Molotia, the uncle of Alexander the Great, and this king saw and seized the chance of founding an empire in the west, of doing there on a small scale what his nephew was accomplishing on a mighty scale in Asia. He was an able man, and success attended his arms. On the east coast of Italy, he subdued Mesopians, and pushed as far north as Sympontum, which he captured. In the west he smote the Brescian League, seizing Consentia and liberating Turina. 
His power was so great in the south that Rome had made a treaty with him, and it is possible that his designs reached to Sicily. The welcome given to this ally and deliverer was also reflected in the money of Tars. Coins were struck with the seated eagle of Dodona and the thunderbolt of Zeus beside it, but Tars presently felt her own freedom menaced by the conqueror, and she renounced her alliance. War ensued, Therai upholding Alexander. The barbarians profited by these struggles to rise against their conqueror, and a battle was fought at Pandosia. During the engagement, a Lucanian exile in the Tarentine army stabbed the king in the back, and the design of an Epirot empire bestriding the Hadriatic perished with him. This befell not long after the overthrow of the Persian monarchy on the field of Guagamela. But Alexander's work had not been futile. Henceforth, Terrace was able to keep the upper hand over her Italian neighbors. End of chapter 15, part 12. Recording by Paul Sutton.